Some stories are written for entertainment. These are the kinds we read in the novel, the stories we see on the news, the stories we tell around the campfire. Some stories are written to historically record the accurate facts. We want to write down what really happened so we'll know. Some stories are written out of a more personal perspective or basis. We just want to write what we're feeling or what's happening to us. I was thinking about the elementary school choir that sang for us this morning. Wasn't that wonderful? I haven't heard them before. I was thinking about these third, fourth, fifth, sixth graders, and I remembered I have a note, a file folder full of classroom notes. You know the kinds little kids write in school? These never made it to their recipients. I have a friend who is a teacher, and I love to read these notes. And I'm sorry whoever was supposed to get them never got them, but one of these notes in particular is written by a fourth grade boy. It was found on a school bus from a field trip. Never made it all the way back to the girl where it was headed. And he writes in the note, Oh, baby, baby. You are my fire, baby. And he spells fire, F-A-I-R-E. You're my fire, baby. When you walk by, my heart goes ba-boom, ba-boom. <laughs> Your hair is black coal. Now, I think he meant a simile there, black as coal or a, you know. Your hair is black coal, baby. Don't look at other boys because you are my fair fire. Some people write their stories down or their words down because it's highly personal and they want to communicate something like their love. We're going to open the Gospel of Mark today and we'll read for seven weeks out of Mark's words. Mark is writing with an entirely different purpose. Mark would like to persuade you and me. He would like for us to consider being changed by what we read. In fact, Mark's Jesus is so powerful, he really can alter your life script or my life script. It's, Mark's story is the kind that just embraces us and pulls us in. So it's a disclaimer from the beginning here. Don't read this gospel if you're not prepared to be changed. Mark, who's sort of this anxious writer, he's always in a hurry. You'll read the word immediately 41 times in the Gospel of Mark, and he writes in a, a nervous, agitated fashion with, with not too many details. He's the first to write, this little Mark, his Jewish Christian perspective. In fact, he's so abrupt to begin the Gospel, we get a full-grown Jesus in Mark chapter 1. And the story ends just as quickly as it began. In fact, some people are, were bothered by the ending of Mark and years later came along and wrote the longer ending. That's why you read in your Bible in Mark chapter 15 and 16, the short ending, the long ending, because some people thought this is just not the way to end a good story. Mark, anxious, eager to get something across to those of us who are going to read it. A Jewish Christian, being Jewish is not the problem, it's the context being poor and displaced and unemployed. Now that's the problem. And that's the majority of Mark's readership, these Jewish Christians roaming around Palestine. In fact, you read the crowds, the crowds, over and over in the Gospel of Mark. 39 times he refers to the crowds. That's because they have no place to go. They don't have jobs, they don't have homes, and they wander around becoming poorer and sicker, and they die the Gospel of Mark. 
I don't know if you saw a week ago Wednesday anyone in the Inland Empire with one of those ashen crosses on their forehead. Did you see that on Ash Wednesday? I've always been intrigued by the ritual of Ash Wednesday and the beginning of the Lent season, those 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday. I've been intrigued with this ritual that is so old. It started in the second and third century where the palm branches that are waved in church on triumphal entry Sunday, one week before Easter, those palm branches are burned and the ashes become that which the, the official dips his or her fingers in and reaches out and makes the X on the forehead of the believer as they say the words, from ashes you came to ashes you go. The practice of Lent and Ash Wednesday where people usually decide to fast and, and they think about what they might give up, but really it's always been associated with a contemplation of the days and the events leading up to the cross, following Jesus to the cross. And, and I'll admit I've been a little envious of these Christians who've been careful to spend 40 days contemplating and imagining the cross. One Sabbath for resurrection just isn't quite enough. Would you agree? We're pretty good at it in the Adventist church, but I want more than just one Sabbath. We've decided then to spend seven weeks in the Gospel of Mark. It's close to 40 days. We will work our way through, and if you've looked in your bulletin or in your pew rack there, you'll see a little bookmark which has a reading guide, and we invite you to read along at home with the hope that when you come into the sanctuary on Sabbath then, we'll have a richer conversation together because you've been following along at home. You see the bookmark, it's called Mark My Words. And my daughter told me that was the, oh, you're here, I can't say it. <laughs> I thought it was a clever title, and you have to check with the teenager if you want to know if you're right or not. Mark My Words. We'll be reading it for seven weeks together. We'll linger in the Gospel of Mark. Now, let me tell you that the first, uh, day, the first week is a little more heavily weighted, and it, it, it evens out. It gets lesser and lesser as we move on. So don't be overwhelmed. You can read five chapters, can't you? You can read five chapters. Dan can. Can anybody else read five chapters? So it's, it's not that much to read. I was tempted, however, to download the text message version of the Bible. Have you seen that yet? It was developed in Australia in the fall. Evangelists in Australia decided for you and I who live in this ridiculous world, we might need to read in dub beginning. I don't know when dub became a text message word, but check out the one from 1 John chapter 4. This one's good. We love because God loved us first. That's the text message version of the Bible. We're going to read the good old-fashioned way. 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to watch for the characters and the locations. Watch for the brief, very brief, candid conversations. Mark doesn't give a lot of detail. Watch as they move around and these bold, brave actions take place. What is it that Mark is so eager to tell you and me? That's what we're going to do. If you go to the Gospel this morning and open a Bible there in front of you, Gospel of Mark chapter 1 and verse 9 is where we meet Jesus. And John the Baptist has already been out in the wilderness preaching and baptizing people. Jesus comes along in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you. I'm well pleased. 
And we ask immediately, does Jesus need a baptism? Is this the same kind of baptism we would do here in the, in the church? Or is it Jesus dunking himself under the water like was done in those days? Is it Jesus initiating some new kind of movement by him choosing to be baptized? We don't really know. But when you read, the heavens tore open and a dove descended and a voice came you can be sure God's supernatural hand is involved. That's what those words would mean to a Jewish Christian reader. All of a sudden, this Roman empire has fractured. It's cracked open, and the hand of God is moving. Watch for those kind of cues as we move through the gospel together. I don't know about the baptism, but Mark wants us to make sure we understand God's here. God's cracked this open. Now watch as he moves quickly. And this is odd because Jesus is called the Son of God. And God says, I love you and I'm pleased with you. And this is an elevated status, by the way. This will come up time and time again in the gospel. Under what authority, Jesus, do you do this? Mark wants us to know as his readers from the very beginning, under the authority of God. This is the Son of God, by the way. Under that authority, he can do what he does. Well, isn't that interesting? If he has all that of authority, the very next place he ends up is out in the wilderness says the Spirit cast him out into the wilderness. Verse 12, at once he was sent into the wilderness. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. It is a strange place for the Son of God to, to end up. Cast out, just the very same word that we'll hear in a, a little bit for the demons being cast out. Jesus cast out to the wilderness. There's nothing in the wilderness. Everyone knows the wilderness is isolated, it's lonely, it's dangerous, it's also the realm of evil spirits. So why is Jesus out there? Forty days, and we know that number 40, it's pretty special to the children of Israel. Elisha and Moses and Jesus, 40 days, 40 years. Jesus, for 40 days, is out in the wilderness Whatever else happened out there, it seems to be that the wilderness is a place where the, the children of Israel get a little clearer on what God wants. Maybe that's why Jesus went to the wilderness. Well, the text says that the angels protected him, even though there, there were wild animal, animals out in the Judean desert. And again, that's a, a, another indicator the supernatural hand of God is moving. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And Jesus is on the move, and he has a message that's just a little different than John the Baptist, who said, repent and be what? Baptized. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. The time is now. What is the good news? Mark doesn't say. Get used to it. He doesn't say. What is the good news? If you lived in the Roman Empire, good news is usually associated with, with a new battle plan, a battle that's been won, or seating a new leader, a new ruler in the region. What's the good news? When it says the time has come, we have more of a clue because that's another one of those God words. God has a time and some kind of good news is happening right now, and Jesus takes off with this message. Did you notice, by the way, he didn't say, repent and believe in me? That's the Gospel of John. That's not in Mark's story. Jesus is not proclaiming himself. Repent and believe in the good news, and he moves from the wilderness up to the Sea of Galilee. We're going at Mark's pace here. Chapter 1, verse 16. 
Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, I will make you fishers of people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and he left, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed Jesus. Two brothers who get up and walk away. And we don't know. How much do they know about Jesus? Have they seen enough? Have they heard enough? Is, there, is the rumor mill, the gossip network, which worked so well in Palestine, do they know that when they drop their nets, when they walk away from their job, do they know this is a sure thing? For out there are the crowds, and remember, they are unemployed, and they are poor, and they are sick. But here you have these four young men, and they're probably teenage boys. And it happens so quick, we can't even get a grasp of it, but, but they drop everything. They choose to move from their security and be displaced. And they leave the hired boys with the dad. That basically means they give their birthright to the hired men. I said earlier this week, for sure the mamas were not present, because the mama would have said, you can't go, wouldn't she? The boys drop the net and leave dad there. Do they know what they're getting into? Mark doesn't tell us so much. But we know they're off to Capernaum. They're going to the north edge of the lake, of Gal the region in there, and the Sea of Galilee. And on the northern region is the border. You can think it of entering a new state or a new country, and that's where the tax collectors sit, and that story's coming up soon. But before they get there, Jesus runs into this, the synagogue, and he decides to teach. And they wonder, well, why do you think you can teach? And who gave you this authority? And he runs into this madman, when we read madman or with an unclean spirit, we need to read a person who's mad, and a madman usually is very dirty because he has no way of taking care of him, and he's possessed, and so he becomes called an unclean spirit that's inside of him, when actually he's just probably a very unclean body, but with something inside of him, and Jesus meets him. He decides that he's going to cast this demon out, and before he does, the demon identifies Jesus, and he calls him the Holy One of God. And Jesus casts him out and silences him. Has anyone else recognized Jesus yet? No, but a demon has. Jesus casts him out. He moves to Simon's house. He heals Simon's mother. It says Simon's mother is sick. They lift her up on a, on a mat. He heals her. And by nightfall, the word is out. And all the people are at the front door. And they all want to be healed. And the, the Bible says in verse 34, chapter 1, he healed many. And he cast out many demons. And all those demons he cast out, they recognized him too. And he told all of them to be quiet. He silenced those demons. What happened on that first day in Capernaum? is typical of just about every other day in the ministry of Jesus. He's about ready to move into a rapid fire that's even quicker than what we just did. In the next round of rapid fire healings, Jesus does their healings and miracle stories. When, when you and I in our world today see someone who's sick, we immediately think of physical diagnosis and, and a treatment plan, don't we? We've got to make them well. In the New Testament, people walked around sick. They, they walked around with their physical ailments. When we read about a sick person in the New Testament, someone Jesus needs to heal, it's less about a physical disease and it's more about a social standing. So every time we read Jesus healed or cured, and that's not a problem, there's lots of magicians around the area doing that, not a problem to do that, but when, when Jesus does it, it's always a bigger conversation. It's never just to heal the body. 
It's always a conversation that's going to call into question the systems that put that person in the sick category, a social outcast category. And it works bing, bing, bing like this as you work through the next few stories in chapter 2. Jesus describing, attacking the systems that are in place that have told people, you're okay, you're not, you're okay, you're not. First he works, starts with the, the priests, and the priests are the ones to whom you go to be de declared unclean or clean. So they have their system. And then there's the scribes who interpret the scriptures. And the scribes are the ones who, al who also tell you economically and legally and morally what you owe or what sentence you have to serve. They interpret it from the Bible. So when you read someone is in debt or is a, is a sinner, that means they're in debt because a scribe has told them how much they owe. And then Jesus moves on to the Pharisees who are very busy trying to enforce sort of this legal behavior among people. Who can eat with whom? What can you eat? When can you eat it? What about the Sabbath? What about public acts of religious displays? Jesus goes after those groups one at a time in these next stories. He's really, <laughs> he's working on a system that uh, isn't, believes it's entitled. You know about entitlement? Do you know about the elite, about the people who decide who's in and who's out and who's not and how you're going to get there? Kirby and I, in our household, have a little disagreement over something. He tells me I can tell the story. Now, be nice to him. Last time I told a story in December, I told a story about him losing his keys, that he loses his car keys regularly. And a couple of you walk up to him and dingle your car keys in his face every once in a while. So be nice, church. Well, there's a little disagreement here. He, Kirby travels a lot, and because he travels a lot, he has a card in his wallet that says he's a very special person, an advantaged flyer. So when he goes to the airport, he gets special treatment. He goes in the line where very special people go, and he gets served quicker, and he gets pushed up to first class occasionally because he flies enough, and he gets discounts on cars and hotels, and if he looks just right, they'll dab his head with a wet cloth, you know, and that's because very important people travel. And I stand in the line with the regular folks, with some of you, where we've been there for two hours while the very important people cut to the front, and when the security line is long and they squeeze in, and we wonder, what's so good about them? And I have told Kirby ever since he got that Advantage card, that is not right. Jesus would not stand in that line. <laughs> he would not. We don't travel together all the time, so he does his elite thing, and I do my little ordinary plain folk protest thing. <laughs> when we travel together sometimes, however, he'll stand in his line, and I'll stand in my line, you know, but after a while, it's not a very sweet domestic picture you're presenting to the world. He's there, and I'm here saying, the first shall be last. <laughs> so I, I go in his privileged line when we travel together. And he gets us great seats, and he gets us free things, and we go in a little boardroom, and, and he says to me, see, isn't it nice? And some of you are say, doing this with your heads. And he tells me, if you had one of these cards, you would use it too. Everybody wants to go in the elite line. Now, I want you to know that in January, a card came in the mail for me. I took one trip last year that was very lengthy, and so apparently I got all these miles, and now I have a card too. 
but my card is in the envelope because I refuse to open it and use it and stand in that line. I'm going to stand where all the people stand. And you can tell I have an attitude and that I'm not any better because I told you I have a problem with this. He tells me, and he's right, everybody would like to be entitled. Everyone wants to be with the elite. Everybody wants to have enough and more than enough. We all want to feed our families well, and we don't want to have to struggle in the world. And, and we want to be in, not out. So watch Jesus as he moves now into Capernaum with this series of things right in a row. Verse 40, he decides to heal a leper. Someone says to him, do you have the authority to do this? Under what authority do you heal the leper? leper? And it's the question of the day, the question Mark has put there intentionally. He heals the leper, and he wants the leper to go back to the priests and testify. What would that do? That would say to the priests, see, you aren't the only ones that declare clean and unclean. But we read that the leper's not able to do it in verse 43. Jesus sent the leper away with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. The leper can't do it. He goes public. And from now on, you watch all these miracles in the Gospel of Mark. People will line up on two sides. They'll either see Jesus' miracles as lawlessness or as liberation. The leper can't do what Jesus asks, so he keeps moving. Here's a paralyzed man who's come to him. He says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? Your debts are released. You don't owe anybody anything. If you're a Jew, you have to be thinking, Israel, the year of Jubilee, every 49 years, your debts are released. And the people say, well, who, who does Jesus think he is? Chapter 2, verse 6, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow, Jesus, talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now it's in the scribes' territory. They're saying, Jesus doesn't forgive sins. God forgives sins through us. We tell people when their debt is released. The scribes are telling Jesus, get off of our territory. And if it's not enough, Jesus, it's like Jesus says, oh yeah, well, we'll watch this. I wasn't going to do this, but, but he heals the paralyzed man too. He puts his legs back under him, and now he can go out into the world and get a job and feed his family and become normal. He can become like the rest of us. That's all Jesus is doing, and he keeps moving. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out beside the lake. A large, large crowd came to him, and they began to, he began to teach them. He walked along, and he saw Levi. Levi is a tax collector, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up, and he followed him. In the very next scene, Jesus puts Levi, the tax collector, with the sinners, the people who are in debt. So at the very same table are the people in debt and the people who keep those people in debt. And the Pharisees walk by because they're in control of all this public behavior. Who gets to eat with whom? And, and they look and see what Jesus has done. And they say, you can't do this. These people don't get to eat together. And while they're talking about food, the next conversation is fasting. And they're worried that Jesus' disciples don't fa fast in verse 18. John's disciples were fasting. The Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked of Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus basically tells them, fasting is for grieving people, and we're not grieving here because did you know, did you know that the kingdom of God has come and, and the good news is now, and, and we don't have time to fast, and we'll fast later. And, and by the way, fasting is really for the elite. Poor people can't really fast. Poor people need to eat whenever food is there. And while we're talking about food, 
Jesus is walking through the grain fields with, with his disciples, and it's Sabbath, and they're hungry. Verse 23, and he goes to the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they begin to pick the heads of the grain, and they're not supposed to do this, and the Pharisees are watching, and they say, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And, and Jesus makes that statement we all memorized as children for a memory verse. Sabbath was made for and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus says, Sabbath is for humans, which is translated, hungry people deserve to eat in God's kingdom. And he moves along into the synagogue where we get to the final healing, a man with a withered hand. One of the other gospel writers says the man has two withered hands. But now they've come to a showdown. This is really drama in the synagogue. The Pharisees have drawn a line, and they're going to see if Jesus will step over it. He's just torn apart everything else, and the man has a withered hand, and Jesus asks the question, well, what, is it lawful to save life? Verse 4, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they remained silent, and your text says Jesus got angry. He was, he, he's noticeably mad. The word means the wrath of God is stirring inside of him. And just like that, that withered hand, Jesus restores. And he sends the man out, able to get a job, able to be gainfully employed. He's taken what was outside the circle and brought him inside the circle. And the very next text says the Pharisees and the Herodians went outside to plot the death of Jesus. It is a watershed moment. If you're Simon or Andrew or James or John, you're probably ready to go home now. You probably get the idea, somebody might get killed in this kingdom. I, I think I'll go back where I was. Let him fish for people, I'll fish for fish. I don't like the way this is headed. Because Jesus has stood firm and said in, in these death surroundings, everywhere he looks, there's death and a bounded community and a corrupt system. And Jesus has decided to stand up and say, in God's kingdom, people live. Jesus chooses life. And he wants the disciples to choose the same thing. One of the sad outcomes of the gospel, as we'll watch over the weeks, is that the disciples have a difficult time understanding this. And you've seen so far, there are two people who've recognized Jesus and his authority. One was the voice from heaven at the baptism, you're my son. Who else recognized Jesus? The demons. So we have good on one side and we have evil on the other side. And do you see the great controversy unfolding right before you in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Mark? That's the say, stage that will be set now for the next six weeks as we move towards the cross. There is a battle. Are you going to choose life or are you going to be ruled by your surroundings of death? It won't be an easy read if you want to take this Jesus seriously for the next few weeks. This Jesus might change you. This Jesus might change me from where we even are today. It's been several years since I was called to a house. Someone needed prayer. 
There was a mother and a grandmother raising small children, and no, no man in the house, no father, no male influence. There were some little problems, and they asked if I would come and pray. One of the little problems was that a, a 25-year-old brother had moved into the home, brother prodigal, a prodigal son who'd been long gone. But this young man came home as an addicted IV drug user, HIV-infected, now full-blown AIDS, hepatitis, no income, obviously, no place to live, and he decided to move in the house. And he was now the male role model for the young children. I came to the house. I was told he was, you know, tossed, tossed around in the back room, sound asleep, out. And I didn't expect to meet him. I came into the driveway, and I met these people that I knew, and I hugged them all. But out of the shadows from the back of the house in the driveway stepped this 25-year-old man with his blue jeans, you know, falling off his hips, no shirt, tattoos all over his body, messed up hair, as spaced out as one could be. I just hugged all the family members, and he saw that, and I said to him, hello, my name is Chris, and, and, and I put my hand out, and I saw him take his hand from his side and slowly just pull it up the side of his body until he got it to about here where he looked at it, he had stopped and looked at his own dirty hand, and he ju just began to gesture it out so I could shake it. And, and he pulled it back, and he took his hands down the side of his body and wiped them both like this. And he tucked his hands in his back pocket, and he said to me, Hello. Have you ever had one of those moments where you knew you didn't do the right thing? I, where you wish you could go back and do that again? What I had right in front of me that day was the closest thing we have in our world to a leper in Capernaum. What I had right in front of my hands was a man who just needed someone to touch his skin, someone to put their arms around him and say, the world says you're out, but I say you're in. Be careful if you're going to read the Gospel of Mark. Because this Jesus is going to stir you up like this. If you came today and you feel like you relate more to the entitlement crowd, read along and watch. Watch how Jesus changes them too. If you came today and you feel like you're on the outside and everybody's put you in your place and society has told you you aren't good and you're never going to make it and God can't touch the hands of a dirty HIV-infected, drug-abusing, homosexual kid. If you relate more to that, I hope you heard the words at the beginning of the gospel. When the heavens break open and God says to Jesus, you are my son, I am pleased with you. That's what God says to you today. Wherever you come from, God says, I am pleased with you. Do not forget that. So hang on for six more weeks, would you? It's called a manifesto of radical discipleship, the gospel of Mark. Are you up for that journey? We're headed that way to the cross, and I invite you to come back and be part of it each week. Thank you for leading us in singing now. Will you please stand?
just as you are in the Spirit glory. Come just as you are. Come and see. Come and see. Come receive. Come receive. Come and live. Come and live forever. God who stands for life, whose world was created for living and for goodness, in the name of that God, we say thank you. Make us your radical disciples this week, God. With this example of Jesus, may we be bold in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>